The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people, and so long as men die, liberty will never perish. That was Anton Karras of The Third Man, the theme song, as you know by now. And at the top, it was uh, Charlie Chaplin uh, from the uh, great film, The Great Dictator, 1941. And uh, we uh, put that up there in the beginning because we are going to explore a case of the Espionage Act that took place in 1917 of a film producer, a film director, and and a costume designer who had his own business fellow by the name of Robert Goldstein. And we have the uh, gentleman who wrote the book in 1993, the only book out there on Robert Goldstein. And his name is Anthony Slide, uh, who is a uh, British-born citizen that moved to New York in 1971. He is now an American citizen. And uh, he's probably the foremost uh, archivist and uh, filmographer on American cinema or just cinema in general. Uh, particularly the silent film era. This guy is really special, and uh, he has uh, credits that you cannot believe, uh, Anthony Slide. So we'll be talking to him uh, shortly. Uh, But first, before we do that, uh, we are going to interview um, uh, our good friend at the ACLU, uh, Ben Weisner, who is the, uh, the director of the ACLU Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. And uh, he's going to give us a history of the abuse of the Espionage Act. So uh, then we'll be playing silent film trailers throughout. And at the end, we will have uh, our good friend from the Courage Foundation uh, come on, and that is Nathan Fuller, uh, to give us an update on the the Assange uh, upcoming uh, second part of his extradition hearing and uh, events that the Courage Foundation has planned. But uh, we're uh, going to... um, Take a quick break here. This is from uh, a, a, the first talkie, by the way, 1927. And it's, you know, not really a talkie all the way through. It's, it's Al Jolson in the Jazz Singer. So we're going to play this to keep in spirit of Mr. Slide's knowledge and uh, the exploration into this case of a film director in the silent film era. Uh, we're going to play this tune, and then we'll come back with Ben Weisner. This is Al Jolson again in The Jazz Singer. We'll be right back with the great Ben Weisner. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you. You ain't heard nothing. You want to hear Tootsie? All right. Hold on. Hold on. 
Lou, listen. Play two chut 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 three chorus, you understand? And the third chorus, I whistle. Now give it to him hard and heavy. Go right ahead. was uh, Al Jolson from the uh, first talking uh, film, uh, 1927, The Jazz Singer. I'm Randy Credico, Randy Credico Live on the Fly, and this is Assange Countdown to Freedom. Today we are focusing on the Espionage Act, and to, joining us right now is the, <clears throat> the director of the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology uh, Project, also the uh, attorney for this great American this heroic American who uh, is charged under the Espionage Act, and that is Ed Snowden. Uh, ben, uh, thank you for uh, coming on the show at short notice. Of course, glad to be here. So uh, uh, I've got this, I don't know if you uh, know about this case here of, of this first, we know that, we know that uh, Julian Assange is the first journalist, unless you uh, count uh, Victor Berger in 1917, 1918, uh, but the only, the one and only, uh, individual charged under the Espionage Act, uh, who's a film producer or director, is this guy, uh, Robert Goldstein, a very unusual case. Um, uh, do you know about this case much, or can you give us a layout uh, of no. the Espionage Act? I can talk a little bit about the Espionage Act. I'll rely on you for sharing information about that case, but the Espionage Act, uh, often referred to as the Espionage Act of 1917, um, was the legislation that Woodrow Wilson and the Congress used uh, at the time that America entered into World War I in order of, uh, effectively to crush dissent, uh, to try to uh, marginalize and criminalize conscientious objectors, to try to shut down the media that was opposed to America's involvement in that war, and then ultimately to go after other kinds of dissenters. Uh, but this was a law that was really expressly designed um, to go after activists and media who opposed the U.S. entering World War I uh, on the side of the British uh, and against the Germans. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're now 100 years later, but, but the first years of the Espionage Act, uh, including the Sedition Act of 1918, which amended it, um, really was a horror show um, uh, for what passed for civil society in the United States. Uh, Well-known journalists and editors uh, were, were pressured, were not allowed to use the mail, um, uh, Eugene Debs was prosecuted under the sedition aspect of the, uh, of the Espionage Act. And, uh, and this really was what led to the founding of the ACLU in 1920. It was all because of the Espionage Act. Uh, the, uh, the attempt, and they were successful. The, the, uh, it was this month in 1917 that uh, Congress passed it, and it was later signed by Wilson uh, I think in July or August of the same year, and it went into effect. And he said that uh, he didn't want anybody bad mouthing uh, our, our allies, uh, the Brits. Uh, how has it been abused going back then, uh, uh, going forward over the last 103 years? 
Well, it's changed. I mean, remember, you had this this first period right around World War One and afterwards where it was really used to go after dissenters. And the famous Supreme Court case, Shank versus United States, um, uh, in a decision by Oliver Wendell Holmes, he upheld the constitutionality of the Espionage Act and, and established the well-known but now obsolete clear and present danger test for First Amendment speech and essentially said, uh, in a time of war, uh, the government has the authority to shut down speech uh, that could present a danger to the national security. That, that test has since been uh, eclipsed and even Holmes himself came to regret um, his opinion in that case. Um, but the Espionage Act was used during the notorious Palmer raids that went after immigrants and activists and labor unionists um, uh, you know, around 1920, again, leading to uh, the creation of the ACLU. In the modern era of the Espionage Act, we've seen a whole different flavor of abuse. Um, the first person ever charged under the Espionage Act with providing national defense information to the press in the public interest was Daniel Ellsberg in 1971, but he wasn't convicted when that case blew up. Uh, there's a provision of the Espionage Act which makes it a felony to provide national information, national defense information to anyone who's not authorized to receive it. Uh, but not until the 1980s was anyone ever convicted and sent to prison uh, for giving so-called national defense information to the press. That now has become the principal tool of the crackdown on whistleblowers. Uh, and you've seen the Espionage Act used to go after people like Thomas Drake, um, like Chelsea Manning, like obviously Edward Snowden, um, and then a new Rubicon that's been crossed in the Assange case, uh, where we're actually seeing the act used not to go after the leaker, uh, but to go after the publisher of this information and, and to, to prosecute someone who had no obligation to maintain America's secrets at all. What, um, what does it pose, uh, the danger of prosecuting uh, Julian Assange? Uh, you know, what are the implications? Uh, well, look, I mean, there's a reason why the Obama administration, which had no love for Julian Assange, ended up not prosecuting him. They thought about it. They convened a criminal grand jury in the Eastern District of Virginia. They heard testimony from all kinds of witnesses. They tried for years to come up with a theory that could hold Julian Assange guilty of a felony but wouldn't endanger the investigative reporting done by the Washington Post, by the New York Times, by the New Yorker, by other more mainstream uh, media outlets, and ultimately they decided they couldn't do it. That there was no way to fashion a rule that would say that Julian Assange is a felon, but Seymour Hirsch is not, uh, or Jane Mayer is not, or Barton Gelman is not. Uh, and so they decided not to go after this. Now, the Trump administration, in embracing this theory that, that Assange is guilty of a criminal conspiracy because he conspired with a source uh, to, to publish America's secrets, has essentially put all investigative journalism on national security issues into the crosshairs. And if Assange is convicted, and if that precedent is established, then any time an investigative journalist in the United States convinces, cajoles, persuades, works with a source to try to convince that source to turn over classified information in the public interest, um, that journalist is risking a felony conviction um, under this kind of precedent. Remember, what is investigative journalism if not a kind of criminal conspiracy, right? What we want our investigative journalists to do is to conspire with their sources, to interrupt, to compete with the security state's monopoly on secrecy. 
that's what investigative journalism is. But if the Assange prosecution goes forward and sets this precedent, it will also be considered a felony. Um, I haven't uh, spoke, we haven't spoken to you uh, in, in, a, in a few months, so things have changed. I was at the, uh, the hearing in, uh, in London back in uh, February. Uh, you have seen what happened there. Uh, is it like a charade? Is this a complete farce? Look, I was not there. You were there. I'm not an expert on British law, so I have not been as closely following the extradition proceedings. My job is to say, here's what happens if they actually extradite the guy. If they actually extradite the guy, we're going to be setting a really dangerous global precedent, right? Because what do newspapers in the West do? Well, we try to figure out the secrets of other countries like China, like Iran, like Russia, and publish them in the New York Times or in the Guardian and the Washington Post. So if Julian Assange can be extradited to the United States because as an Australian publisher, he didn't respect the US secrecy laws, why shouldn't a New York Times reporter be extradited to Beijing? Because as a US citizen, he didn't respect China's secrecy laws, right? This is a really, really serious game that's being played here and a really dangerous precedent that could be set um, if we say that a non-American journalist not working in the United States is somehow bound by American secrecy laws. Well, I, you know, you, you summed it up right there. Uh, I don't even need to say uh, what will happen at the trial if he, it is a successful extradition and he goes into that court in, in Eastern Virginia. Uh, just the very mere charge against him and then him being brought over, even if he is you know, exonerated, that in and of itself is very chilling. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two different events, both of them very chilling. You know, again, one, the idea that a country can use its law to reach out to a journalist in another country and bring them back for the crime of publishing. Um, and the second, which is really more unique to the United States, which is the chilling effect that it will have on American journalists whose job it is to publish government national security secrets. Today, as we're having this interview, there's a fascinating piece on the Atlantic magazine website by Bart Gelman. It's an excerpt from his book about Edward Snowden called Dark Mirror, in which he essentially says, my job is to root out classified information from the security state and give it to the public against the wishes of the government. That's my identity. That's what I'm supposed to do. And under this theory that's being pursued in the Assange case, that's clearly a felony conspiracy. Wow. Well, uh, I don't know that you, you put it all together there, uh, all the information uh, setting up our, our next guest. I, I want to ask you uh, before you go, uh, how uh, is uh, this heroic individual doing at this point in time? Well, let me tell you, he's given me a lot of tips on how to survive in quarantine. Uh, you may have noticed that I've reached the custom velour tracksuit stage of the quarantine. Uh, Snowden famously calls himself an indoor cat. So even before he was living in exile and essentially living professionally out of his apartment, um, he was not somebody who was out and about all that much. Um, and so he's actually, I talk to him every day uh, and he's helped me adjust to this sort of new crazy reality that we're living in. Um, uh, but he's, you know, he's good. His book, which you showed is terrific. I hope everybody who hasn't had a chance to read it, will read it. I know some people are concerned that if they buy it, the money will go to the US government because of that lawsuit. But I assure you, the government would rather that you not read that book than that they get your $1 or, or whatever profit they would get from it. Um, I, 
it's called Permanent Record. Yeah. Permanent Record, and I just started reading it, and it's a great book. And Terrific. you'll get it, even if it goes to the government. Uh, <laughs> please get this book. The information is invaluable. It's worth every penny of it to get to the government. Get it. Tell your friends about it. Uh, share it and uh, recommend it. So great read. Thank you. Uh, tell him thank you for all the great work that he's done. He's an American hero, and uh, we're all smarter uh, because of him, and we know a lot more about the government. He is doing a great job and has done a great job, and he, like I said, he's a very courageous man, and I thank you, Ben. You are uh, a courageous man yourself. Uh, keep up the uh, good work. ACLU people, uh, should continue to support the ACLU right now with the war on journalism, the war on the courts, the war on, on everything else by this uh, president. Uh, you're needed now more than ever. Thanks a lot, Randy, for those words, and I'll see you again soon. All right. Uh, that is uh, Ben Weisner. We'll be right back. This is, uh, since we're doing silent films today, uh, this is Buster Keaton in a recently restored trailer from the film Sherlock Jr. Be right back with... Mr. Anthony Slider. Okay, uh, that was the trailer from Sherlock Jr., uh, 1924, uh, with the uh, great Buster Keaton. I'm Randy Credico. This is Randy Credico, live on the fly. And um, here we go. We uh, have, as promised, uh, probably the most important filmographers and archivists in America, cinema and cinema in general, and that is... Um, Anthony Slide, who joins us from uh, Southern California, Studio City. Uh, thank you, Mr. Slide, for uh, taking the time out to do this show. Well, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for your generous comments. Well, it's a lot of people say that. You know, I've been doing uh, research on this uh, film that you wrote a book about, 1993, on, uh, on this guy, Robert Goldstein, and uh, they all refer to your book, every mm -hmm. single one. There's a lot of like little articles out there. I read something in Slate about uh, Goldstein's uh, woes, and uh, they all refer back to you. So um, let's, uh, I mean, can, can I begin by the, giving me kind of a backdrop of what L.A. was like or Hollywood was like back in that era? 
in the mid 1950, 1960, 1970. What well, was the well, Robert Goldstein came to Los Angeles from um, San Francisco, where his parents ran a um, costume rental um, store. Very, very prominent store. In fact, it supplied costumes for the San Francisco Opera. So Goldstein moved to Los Angeles to open up a branch um, down here. And of course, back then, um, there were no high-rise buildings, basically. Um, Hollywood Boulevard was lined with pepper trees. Um, and um, the film industry was blossoming. The, the film industry really started back east in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and New York. And they'd slowly moved to California for the sun and for various other reasons. And, um, and, um, and of course, you had the greatest filmmaker in the world, D.W. Griffith, at that time working on The Birth of a Nation, um, which was his personal vision of the Civil War and the Reconstruction period told from a Southern viewpoint. Right. Um, sorry. Go ahead. I'm listening oh, to you. Okay. So basically what happened, um, how Robert Goldstein got involved in film was that um, Goldstein supplied the costumes for D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. And um, he also put up money for the film. He, um, Goldstein seems to have been fairly well off. And so he was able um, to provide some funding for The Birth of a Nation. Griffith was having a hard time because the film was so massive in scope and, and in length um, that it was hard to, you know, to, to find the funding. So Goldstein, um, very luckily for him, put up some money and, and as a result, the film was such a success, there was, profits were gigantic, and um, Goldstein um, made a lot of money from the film. Uh, and that's really what, how he came to make The Spirit of 76. Well, you want well, me to let continue? Me ask you, yeah. Yes, I do. I just want to ask you one question. Sure, though. Sure. Would, would Goldstein make any movies prior to this? Was he involved in filmmaking before uh, lending the money to or putting money into Birth of a Nation? No, uh, that's a strange thing. He seems to have suddenly been obsessed with, with film after seeing The Birth of a Nation and also seeing it, 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 the, the, you know, the, uh, how spectacular the film was. And he wanted to make a similar film, a film that would have the same sort of impact as The Birth of a Nation. And so he thought, why not make, you know, Birth of a Nation dealt with the Civil War, why not make a film about the War of Independence and call it The Spirit of 76? You know, quite innocuous, it would seem, um, but it turns out it wasn't. Yes. Well, tell us that, that story now. It wasn't an innocuous film. He makes the movie and uh, he showcases it in Chicago. Well, basically, he shot the film and, and it, you know, it contains all the sort of scenes you might expect, all the obvious historical sequences, Paul Revere's ride, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, Valley Forge, etc. But he also depicted a number of um, anti-English, if you will, um, sequences, including the 1778 Cherry Valley Massacre, when British soldiers murdered American settlers. It showed an English soldier bayoneting a baby, a Hessian soldier stabbing an elderly Quaker, and um, the implied rape um, of an American girl by an English soldier. The film also was basically um, you know, a fictional um, story as well. It, it, it was about a half-breed named Catherine Montour, 
who became the mistress of George III and plotted to become Queen of America. All this is fictitious, although in fact, the character of Catherine Montour is actually based on a real life historical figure, Hannah Lightfoot. Um, so anyway, Goldstein made the film. Um, he's ready to premiere it, and he decides to have the first uh, performance in Chicago at Orchestra Hall there in May 1917. Um, some months, I might add, after America had entered the First World War. Now, I think he chose Chicago because Chicago, of course, was always a very pro-German, anti-British city, um, pro-German, pro-Irish, anti-British, I might say. And um, so he thought, the, you know, the response there would be very strong, very positive. But he didn't, he didn't reckon upon Chicago's notorious film censor, who was, had a wonderful name, Major Funkhauser, and, <laughs> um, Major Lucullus Funkhauser. And he was, he was quite an obnoxious character, really. Um, back then, America, well, America's never really had any sort of formal federal censorship. But back then, individual cities and states had their own film censorship boards, and Chicago um, was one city that had a censorship board headed by Funkhauser. And he didn't like the film because he thought it might arouse sexual antagonism towards Britain, and he banned the film outright. Wow. Well, Goldstein paid no attention and showed the film anyway, whereupon the, the police arrived, seized the film, and um, screening was closed. Um, subsequently, Goldstein did make cuts. Some of the anti-British sequences were cut from the film, and the film reopened. And, and apparently everything was okay, but little did Goldstein know what was going to happen very soon, because he decided to show the film in, um, in Los Angeles in November of 1917, and he shows Clune's Auditorium on Pershing Square. This was actually where Griffith had shown both The Birth of a Nation and Intolerance. So Goldstein wanted to show his film there to, to prove that it was on a par with the Griffith uh, masterworks. Um, so the film opened at um, Clune's Auditorium in November 1917. Two days later, the film was taken off and Goldstein was arrested and charged on three counts of violation of the Espionage Act. Can I add um, one thing there? Uh, the Espionage Act, uh, was passed by Congress um, in, in May, and then it was actually signed by Wilson uh, in the fall. So at that point, it was in effect. Yes, but only just about that, really. Right. Um, and I don't, I mean, maybe you know, because um, I'm not a political historian, but I don't know how many other people were arrested under the Espionage Act. I don't know. Many, many were. We'll have a guy on from the ACLU who will give us a history of oh, that. Oh, okay. okay. Um, but certainly Goldstein was the only guy to be arrested for making a film. The only one in history. That the I'm only. aware of anyway, yes. No, that's absolutely true. Yeah. And the thing was, I mean, it was, it was really a horrific period in American history because there was so much anti-German feelings. And Goldstein, of course, was Jewish. Uh, he, he was born in America, but his parents came from Germany. So, you know, there was that. He, he was tinged, if you will, with them. Um, with a, a sort of a vague anti-Semitism, anti-German um, feeling. Um, anyway, he, he actually couldn't find an attorney to represent him to begin with, because no attorney in Los Angeles wanted to, to be seen on the side of Robert Goldstein. So horrendous a character, apparently, was he to the American people. 
Um, and eventually, in April of 2018, he was sentenced to 10 years in the federal penitentiary at McNeil Island and fined $5,000. Um, he, he began his sentence in June of that year. Uh, he did actually appeal, but the appeal failed. Yes. Uh, he couldn't do this on First Amendment grounds because the First Amendment, uh, 1915, the, the Supreme Court uh, declared that the uh, rule that uh, the First Amendment did not apply to movies. And that oh. was later changed years later. That's sort of interesting. I didn't know that. Yes. Well, I did. I had to do a lot of research to find that out. Uh, so so uh, now he, he makes, he goes to jail. This is something that he had sent late. Actually, I'll read this later. So tell us what happens now. He goes to jail and uh, he, uh, um, he has well, a tenure. I mean, you, it, it, when you think about it, that must have been horrific for the poor man. When you look at photographs of Goldstein, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a small guy. He's got a round face. He, he looks rather, in fact, one, I used to know an actress named Jane Novak who was in The Spirit of 76. And she described him as very gentle, very soft-spoken, kind to everyone. Um, what can you imagine a man like that suddenly being put into, uh, you know, the federal penitentiary? You know, what, what, what mental sort of suffering there must have been. Um, it's really appalling. Yeah. And also, by the way, I think it's sort of interesting... Goldstein committed an offense against the Espionage Act because he made yeah. the film. But what about the people who financed the film, which was yes. the Bank of America? <laughs> Why didn't anybody go after the Bank of America? It seems always in American history, it's always individuals who suffer, never corporations or banks or whatever. You know, whatever area of American history you're in, it's always the same story. That's interesting. It's like, you know, I've done shows on Assange a lot. I mean, he's, he's been charged with the Espionage Act, but all of the, the New York Times and the LA Times, uh, CNN, Washington Post, who published the same stuff that he published, none of them are charged under the... They're all, uh, they're all too big, I guess. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you this. So uh, before, was, was this... This guy, also in, in uh, the, the director of, of this film, I think his name was Montgomery. He was actually- Bank Montgomery, yes. Very yeah. minor character, yeah. Yeah, but he, he wasn't charged. It was just the producer and, uh, you know- uh, Well, I it was just Goldstein. I mean, Goldstein was the producer, yes. Um, but but uh, as, as I just mentioned, obviously he had to go for outside financing um, so other people were certainly involved in the production in one capacity or another. Cost $200,000 to make that film. That I is think. correct, yes. Right. So why didn't, let me ask, why didn't D.W. Griffith, who's his friend, who, who I understand in your books, uh, uh, Goldstein went to him to, to get finance on, on the film, and he decided not to do it because he wanted to make his own version. Uh, uh, well, that's not strictly correct. What happened was, Goldstein made a lot of money initially anyway from the profits he made from the birth of a nation. Okay, so he put that money into the making of the spirit of 76. When he ran short of money, um, he, he went to Griffith and asked Griffith for a loan, and Griffith, Griffith actually was a bit cheap anyway, but Griffith wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't give him any money. Um, and in fact, you know, Griffith had also talked about making his own film 
about the declaration about the American War of Independence. But he, supposedly he had told Goldstein he wouldn't make his film if Goldstein was going to make his. He would step aside and let Goldstein make the first major feature film on the subject. I see. Well, why why didn't Griffith, um, you know, why didn't Griffith come to his aid? I mean, uh, he well, helped. Him, I mean, because he was friends with Wilson. Wilson screened uh, Birth of a Nation uh, yeah. in the White House, and you would think that he would have some clout with Wilson to get his buddy. Uh, well, don't, the... don't you think everybody was scared? Nobody wanted to be associated with Goldstein, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I, mean, I don't think, you know, I, the, the, Goldstein doesn't have credit on the film itself, The Birth of a Nation. It doesn't say costumes by Robert Goldstein. So in a way, the public perhaps didn't know of the connection to Griffith and the birth, and Griffith probably didn't want to promote or publicize that. Yeah. Was this, I mean, was this, this is all supposition. We don't really know. Yes. But, you know, he, he adored, he revered uh, Griffith. He had the story, um, uh, you got a call from an auction house oh, yeah. in New Jersey. Yeah, that's, that's, it's sort of strange how everything, well, you called me last week about this. So, you know, after years later, I get these calls related to Robert Goldstein and the Spirit of 76. Well, back in 1993, uh, no, I'm sorry, back in when? Well, about seven years ago, about 2013, something like that. I get a call from an auction house in New Jersey, and they say, um, you know, we've got this um, very strange artifact. It's basically, it's a sculpture of a Klansman. It's solid silver. Um, it's very impressive. I've seen photographs of it. Um, and on the base, it says, from Robert Goldstein to D.W. Griffith, something like in admiration or appreciation, something like that. And it's obviously a gift from Goldstein to Griffith. It's a Klansman. It's solid silver. Um, in fact, the auction house told me if somebody bought it just to melt it down, um, it, it, you know, it was worth $7,000. Because I actually said I wouldn't mind buying it, but I don't have $7,000. Um, the auction house actually was very nervous about this because they figured if they start selling um, memorabilia relating to the plan, they might sort of have um, problems with, with, with demonstrations and um, accusations of... Um, of support for the plan, etc. Yeah. So they did actually sell it. They sold it. It went for about eight thousand dollars. Well, what's fascinating about that is the fact that uh, he, like I said, this guy was a patriotic American. He wasn't uh, someone who was even dissenting. He wasn't like a protester. Uh, he, he just, um, you know, was a film guy. And uh, you know, he wrote this letter to the Academy uh, that uh, he was he was saying, "Why am I?" in this position, basically. Please help me. And yeah. the economy, uh, is, it actually, it says, I am merely a lone man suffering a great wrong for no reason whatever. Can yeah. you, how can you refuse to help me obtain justice? I have never done the slightest thing to warrant this persecution and prejudice against me, which denies the very right to exist. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what in the name of common sense can be the reason for such wanton injustice? That's yeah. a letter we wrote to the Academy. What was their response? Well, basically, the, what could the Academy do? And, and you have to remember back then, it was not the organization it is today. It was a fairly small organization founded in 1927. And, 
you know, it, it only had a fairly small number of members. So it, was, it wasn't in the position of doing anything for, for Goldstein. It was also apolitical. The Academy in, supposedly is a non-political organization. Sometimes when you watch the Academy Awards and you hear everybody sort of speaking up for liberal causes, you might question that. But in fact, it's supposed to be a non-political organization. Let me actually, can I read you something that Robert Goldstein wrote in, oh, oh I guess this, you're, you've quoted this, it's 1927, right? Yeah, oh, that's okay. 1927. If you have anything else, no, I'm sorry that I, you actually have a... No, no, I, I, but I think, I don't think you said this part of it. He said, the worst I did was to blunder or use bad judgment. I am merely a lone man suffering a great wrong for no reason whatsoever. Can you refuse to help me obtain justice? Well, the academy didn't refuse, but they, they weren't in a position to help him obtain justice. He had absolutely nowhere to go. Uh, yeah. and, and they asked Wilson about it. He, did, he wanted to quell any dissent against, uh, uh, against this war. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean well, Wilson did eventually commute the sentence to three years in 1920, but of course the war then was over. And, um, you know, it was a different America. I, I think... Um, Political powers in America were anxious to put the war behind them to get on, a, you know, the right footing with Germany to help Germany um, rebuild and whatever. Right. And they turned their attention to the Soviet Union at that point. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, well, of course, you, yes. I mean, that's absolutely true. And in fact, um, you, you had the Red Scare films that were made in 1918, 1919. You suddenly had the film industry obsessed. With with the threat of, of of communism from Russia, and you have this whole cycle of red red scare films. One of them was the face you you see in the window, uh, nineteen twenty. The face in the window, the face you see in the window, nineteen twenty was one of those red scare films. Mm -hmm. um, so so Goldstein is now now he's commuted. Now what does he do in nineteen twenty? Gets out of this uh, opera. Well, this is, this is where we don't really know exactly what obviously what he was thinking or whatever but obviously i mean his his career such as it was was over in in america he wasn't going to be able to to make films anymore it seems as if his family had disowned him um they didn't want him to have anything to do with him anymore he'd lost the business in los angeles um, his, his father and mother were still very active with, the, with their own company in San Francisco. Uh, and in fact, it's interesting, when the father died um, in the, um, I think about 1924, 1925, um, he left the business to Goldstein's brother. Goldstein got nothing from the family business. So obviously he was disowned by his own family. And then what did he do after that? Well, I mean, what he, what he did is sort of odd. He decided to leave. Well, it's not odd that he should leave America. But what is odd, he, he initially went to the Netherlands thinking he could maybe work in the Dutch film industry. And yet again, you know, in, 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 in hindsight, we wonder why. Does he speak Dutch? Why does he think there's going to be a career for him in the Dutch film industry, which is hardly the biggest film industry in the world? And of course... There isn't anything for him in the Netherlands, so he moves on to Germany. And he's actually there, um, I believe he says he was there 15 years um, in Berlin. And what he did in those 15 years, I do not know. Um, he certainly oh. couldn't get any work in the film industry. Right. So, so is that where the story ends? He's, you know, well, I've read various um, uh, stories about what yeah, happened. Well, 
Well, for years. I mean, when I wrote the book, that's the last. That was the last um, reference I could find to him. Um, everybody, who, <laughs> I would like to say, plagiarizes my book, says the same thing. But then suddenly, the academy found in its files, and um, I didn't miss it, as some people claim, because it wasn't there, but the Academy found in its files a, a, a telegram um, from Goldstein to the Academy. I've got it in front of me now. It's dated June 30th, 1938. And um, he, he says, you will probably remember that I wrote you several times in Berlin during the 15 years I stayed there. I'm sure the Academy didn't. But then he says, since my enforced return, what does that mean? He was forced out of Germany, I guess because he was Jewish, and um, had to come back to America. And, uh, and he's now in New York. He's staying at the Chesterfield Hotel on West 49th Street. That's no longer there. But it was a hotel where a lot of theatrical people stayed. Um, so he must have had some money if he could stay at the Chesterfield Hotel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Randy, may I quote a little more from this telegram? Yes, of course. Because uh, it hasn't been published anywhere. So, quote, There must be some people out there who realize that I am the one and only an original martyr in the American motion picture production, and that I have been persecuted accordingly ever since. That may be the wrong way to put it, but this persecution has been kept up continually ever since. If you wow. will consider that not only my film career, but my life was ruined by my entirely uncalled for prosecution in Los Angeles, and that nothing even remotely resembling my fate ever happened to any other producer in this game, you should agree with me that I should be given some consideration, another chance as a writer, director, or producer, or any other kind of job, or at least something practical. I have been treated so terribly here in New York that I am at my wit's end. And so it occurred to me that even if things are bad right now, there might be something left over for me. If, if yours is not the right organization to consider this matter, would you be so kind as to refer this matter to whoever might be able to help me? It may be merely superstition on my part, but perhaps the whole game might have more luck if they did something decent by me. There seems to be nothing I can do here to help myself. Wow. And that's the last, that's the last word we have from Mr. Goldstein. And, and so that's the last word. Um, well, we know. I mean, I do know when he died, but that's the last written word we have from him. In any yeah. Well, that, that, is, that is such a tale of woe. I, I uh, must say that I, have not, I can't think of anyone in Hollywood. I mean, there's a lot of scandals there, and people came to a, a terrible end, Richard Desmond Taylor and others, but uh, Thelma Todd. But uh, nothing like this. His, he's alive and, and like has a great career going for him in 1915. He's making a lot of money. He's got this mm -hmm. coffee shop. And for the next 35, 40 years, it's a complete horror show for him. I think it's a little frightening, really, because it could happen to anyone. You know, yeah. you don't know. The government's probably listening to what we're saying now. The government may be spying on us. The government may be plotting all sorts of things. We don't know.
we don't know that. And you're certainly right that they have the capability uh, with the uh, National Security Agency. If we've learned anything from Ed Snowden, they can hear this conversation right now. They could mm -hmm. be recording me. I mean, I don't know where they're focusing their, their lens. Um, uh, you know, excuse the uh, pun there about lenses yeah, and yeah. movies. Uh, but um, so uh, let's uh, conclude with the poor Goldstein. Uh, he um, ends up. Uh, I think you you've done. You have all of the stuff on him. That well, I was done. very lucky. I basically collected everything I could find, all contemporary um, commentary on the films, all the material that the Academy had. I was very lucky. The Academy gave me permission to publish everything, and they were very generous. I thanked them in in, in retrospect for that. And um, and then I've you know through the years I've heard from one or two people who have been intrigued by the case, and I actually um, in fairly recent times I heard from somebody who was planning to make a documentary, although nothing came of it. But he actually told me when just to end the story when um, Goldstein died. It was in November 1957, and he died at the Van Etten Hospital in the Bronx. That that doesn't exist, but it's now the Albert Einstein Medical Center. And apparently it was a hospital for TB patients. So Goldstein must have died of tuberculosis. That's amazing. You know, it's, it's, uh, here it is, what a coincidence. He starts, his life is ruined during the first Red Scare, and then it, it ends during the second Red the Scare. The Cold War, yeah, the Cold War, exactly, yeah. yes. Well, 57, that, that's such a fa an incredible story. The name of the book is uh, Robert Goldstein, Spirit of 76, 1993. I, 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 I ordered it, but it hasn't showed up yet. I was hoping that it would get here, but the things are, are uh, you know, you got, I, it's on Amazon right now. Uh, yeah, I, apparently I, I didn't know he was still in print, but I don't think it is in print, but, anyway, but I know I, Amazon has some copies. It would make a great motion picture, and I hope uh, that, uh, you know, they get the book from you and uh, you become the chief advisor. All right, well, so. That would be nice. That would be nice. Anyway, we're, we're going to take a, a quick break and talk about uh, silent film and uh, you know, movies in general a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, we're going to take a little break. This is um, the trailer from uh, the uh, Roundup, 1920, Fatty Arbuckle. Okay, that was Anthony Slide, and uh, that was the first half, or even less than half. Uh, we continued the interview, 
uh, for about an hour and 15 minutes and he really got into Hollywood and the scandals and the political nature of Hollywood. Uh, but that part that you just uh, listened to was all about the Espionage Act in that case. Uh, we are going to have the entire interview available in about a week uh, because uh, this man went through so many different uh, areas of uh, Hollywood, uh, you know, for 30 years of Hollywood up until the end of the silent film uh, era. Uh, so uh, we'll have that uh, for you. Uh, but um, we're going to take a little short break here and uh, we'll uh, come back uh, with some uh, closing remarks and bring on uh, our good friend from Courage Foundation, Nathan Fuller, uh, to uh, give you an update there on the, uh, on the proceedings and, uh, and events that uh, the Courage Foundation has planned. Uh, but we're gonna uh, play this uh, video of another trailer. This is by Charlie Chaplin, and it is from The Circus. We'll be right back with uh, Nathan Fuller. Okay, that was the uh, circus trailer with uh, Charlie Chaplin, great film. I'm Randy Credico, uh, Randy Credico live on the fly. And um, we are now uh, being joined by, as I said uh, in the last segment, uh, by our good friend at the Courage Foundation, it's uh, executive director, Nathan Fuller, uh, who is going to give us an update uh, on the Assange extradition hearing and uh, what events he has planned. Uh, good afternoon, Nathan. Good to talk to you, Randy. How are you doing? Good, good, good. 
So yeah, Sanja's hearing, the remaining three weeks were scheduled to resume on May 18th, and they were postponed because of the coronavirus crisis, but also because Assange has had so little access to his legal team to prepare his legal defense in this massive, complex case. Uh, so it's being postponed. It's going to currently scheduled for September 7th. It could be in a court different than the one his first week was held in. Uh, you and I were both there. Uh, in London, at Southeast London, Belmarsh, uh, Woolwich Crown Court, but now it could be in a different court elsewhere in London or potentially elsewhere in England. But um, for now, he has a little bit more time to prepare for his legal defense. Uh, have you heard about his health? Uh, anybody uh, visit him lately? Uh, unfortunately, we're hearing uh, less and less about his health. It's harder and harder to visit him. It was already pretty difficult for Assange, uh, but now in the coronavirus crisis, it's even harder. He's getting just these little 10 minute uh, phone calls with his legal team. So that's all we hear. And uh, we know though that his last uh, video linked hearing, he was too unwell even to participate in that uh, just by video. Uh, but also we, we know that uh, just being in that holding cell where he would have had to go would put him at risk uh, of COVID-19. Well, the, um, that situation at that prison, that it's a dank fortress and, uh, you know, as we have learned, uh, you know, that uh, virus really spreads like wildfire uh, through the prison system. It's and, really dangerous and the prisoners are not at liberty to protect themselves. And so they're relying on these prisons to, to take uh, the correct precautionary measures and they're just not doing it. And, and as we know, uh, Britain uh, has uh, been uh, very uh, delinquent and uh, derelict uh, of duty in uh, protecting citizens from the spread of corona. And, you know, as I said, the, um, the prisons are hotbeds for uh, this kind of petri dishes for this type of uh, virus. And they know that's a public concern. So they have released some prisoners and they've taken some measures to release low risk, uh, nonviolent prisoners, but they have carved out little exceptions in each one for uh, essentially to say, you know, we're not going to release someone named Julian Assange. They've said, you know, prisoners on remand or under the Extradition Act don't get to be released, but uh, he remains at risk and in, in solitary confinement uh, for no good reason. Well, in the meantime, um, with all that grim news, um, what's, uh, what's in store for Courage Foundation in, uh, in the future here? In yeah, so for the last uh, seven or eight weeks now, we've taken our uh, public rallies online and instead having these webinars, online video panels, uh, discussing various aspects of the case. And so we've just had a couple uh, this past weekend, and you can find those at defend.wikileaks.org slash webinars. And there we have recaps and videos of all our recent uh, video panels. So check those out. And that's also where uh, we'll be announcing more of those to come. Well, they will be coming down the pike here and people should uh, pay attention. Uh, and the Courage Foundation uh, is uh, on, a, on the website, couragefoundation.com. Couragefound.org or then our site for Assange is defend.wikileaks.org. Okay. And just to follow uh, uh, Courage Foundation on Twitter is, is Courage Found. Courage Found. Courage Found. All right. Yep. All right, so uh, thanks a lot, uh, Nathan, for these updates. They're very helpful. Uh, folks, that just about uh, does it. Uh, Randy Critical, Randy Critical, live on the fly, and this has been uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Um, you can get all of our shows. This is, I think, our 24th show this year. I can't believe it. We're, we're doubling our production uh, under uh, this lockdown, 
and we have a lot more to come. You can get them all at Assange um, Countdown to Freedom, to spell it out, dot com. All of them. If you want to support us, you can make a small donation there. And you want to support uh, a Courage Foundation, go to their uh, website and uh, and help them out because they're doing uh, God's work. And uh, and that's a, that's a big thing to say from an agnostic. All right. Appreciate so this has been a very depressing day, you know, this, this, uh, all of this news on, on Julian, but uh, you get, we, we're trying to maintain our spirit and that uh, is going to be represented in this uh, closing uh, song. This is Nat King Cole uh, singing a song written by Charlie Chaplin and the footage is of Charlie Chaplin and uh, it's called Smile. And uh, we'll see you uh, again soon. Thank you very much, everybody. Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. When there are clouds, in the sky, you'll get by If you smile through your fear and sorrow Smile and maybe tomorrow You'll see the sun come shining through For you Light up your face with gladness Hide every trace of sadness Although a tear May be ever so near That's the time you must keep on trying Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile If you just smile Still worthwhile if you just smile.